Dear Father, help us know what it is that you want us to understand in your word today. Help us to know it, not just to hear it, Father. We don't just want to be those who hear the word. We want to be those who do what we learn. And so that requires that you impress this truth on our heart. Put it in our heart in such a way, Father, that as we hear it, it just changes who we are. Changes how we think. Take what I'm going to present here, Father, as I have prepared it, and just fix all the errors. Put it in the ears of those who hear in a way, Father, that they know it's from you and not me. And then, Father, as they they contemplate it, give them the supernatural grace, Father, to be able to live it out. That's a powerful testimony, Father. It's the way your church has been spread from the very first day. Help us to continue that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends, we're in the middle of a teaching in chapter 15 of Matthew. We pick up today in verse 10, kind of backing up a couple of verses from what we did last week. But this is in the middle of a teaching that Jesus does on the errors of legalism. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you pay attention to what you're hearing tonight, you're going to hear some stuff that is, I just think, as important as anything you could hear as a Christian. And I'm sure in saying this, there are some people in this room tonight that I think when you see what the Bible says to you on this point, you're going to get freed in a way that you may never have felt before. I hope that's true for some. This is an important teaching, but let's go back to the moment. In the scene that we're in here, it's set in the Galilee. We have Jesus in the Galilee being confronted by Pharisees because he is failing to observe the rules of the Mishnah. That's a rule book of Pharisees, of of rabbis. And in the section of Matthew that we're in right now, Jesus is training his disciples on how they are to serve him during the kingdom program. And one of the more important lessons that they're going to learn is that the religious experts, so-called experts of their day, were not experts at all. The Pharisees. In fact, Pharisees and these other rabbis, most of them didn't even know God. Or as we would say today, they weren't believers. And yet, they walked around trying to tell Israel what God wanted. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. And the fight that we're looking at here now in chapter 15, it's centered on the rules of ritual washing, because the Pharisees required Jews in that day to engage in these elaborate washing routines before they ate. And that was a tradition, the Bible told us last week, handed down from rabbi to rabbi over centuries. And as such, it had become part of the culture of Israel, of of Judaism. And those traditions had been recorded in a book called the Mishnah. But those rules were not given by God. They're not found in the Bible. They're not from God. They didn't promote greater holiness. They did not involve obedience to God. They were just a means to self-righteousness. And so Jesus rightly ignored them, and he told his disciples to ignore them. Because it didn't matter. That's where we are. We're in the moment in which the Pharisees are contending with Jesus over that problem. And it starts up again, as I said, in verse 10. And in verse 10, we see how Christ responds to the criticism that he received from those Pharisees. Verse 10. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. Now, I read these last week, and I want to pick up more or less in the middle of what we were doing as we did this last week. And and I'll give a little background, and then we'll go forward from here. Jesus is, is giving this parable, and he does so to explain the error in the way the Pharisees taught. And he uses dietary restrictions as his example. 
saying what enters our mouth cannot defile us. Instead, it's what comes out of our mouth that defiles us. Now, obviously, what goes in the mouth, that's a reference to the things you might eat or drink. And what comes out of the mouth, well, most literally, it would refer to speech. But Jesus goes on to explain in the, in the text what he really means by this. And as I told you last week, he's actually teaching on a much broader principle here, on a much more important principle. And he's teaching on the very source of sin, the source of sin. That is, if we're going to prevail in the war against sin and against self-righteousness, you first have to understand your enemy. And that's what this is all about. Jesus says our enemy, sin, It's not something that happens to us. It's not something that comes upon us. It is something that is part of us, living inside us, looking for an opportunity at every turn to exert control over us. That's where sin comes from. And as he begins to explain to the crowd about the nature of sin and where it comes from and about this enemy, he says it in code again. You notice he spoke in this parable. This is in keeping in... Uh, with this new pattern that I've told you to look for now. Jesus will not speak openly to crowds anymore. He will teach in parable to the crowds. And if you don't see this as a parable, well, look down at verse 15 for a second. You'll notice in verse 15, Peter recognized that Jesus was speaking in code, and he asks Jesus to explain the parable. So this is a parable. No one in the moment quite understood what he was talking about. And we're going to get to that next passage in a minute when he explains it. But before we do that, Jesus wants to warn these guys, his disciples, about how you go about handling critics like these Pharisees. And that begins in verse 12. The disciples come to Jesus over concerns about what he just said. In verse 12, Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and he said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. All right, well, if I go to the Gospel of Mark, you find out in Mark that at the moment that this conversation started, they had moved out of the public realm with the crowd and into a home in a private setting. And that's what allowed for Jesus to talk plainly to his disciples. They were no longer in front of the crowd. Now he's teaching them. And that's where he starts to talk plainly. In verse 12, they start the conversation, as you see, and they ask him, were you aware that you are offending the Pharisees? And to that, Jesus said, no, duh. No, not quite. Remember what he had done? He had said publicly that these guys, the Pharisees, were violating the word of God, no less than one of the Ten Commandments by not honoring their mother and their father. That was the accusation he made. And a public challenge like that of the Pharisees' honor was something that just you didn't do. No one ever did that. Remember, in this age, Pharisees were the prosecutors, the juries, and the judges in criminal matters in Israel, using the law of Moses as the law that judged Jewish people. And they could impose the death penalty against Jews that they judge as violating the law. In fact, the last man to openly criticize a powerful leader was John the Baptist. And he ultimately lost his head over it. So the disciples in this case, they were understandably nervous when their boss starts talking down the powers that be in a way that makes those guys offended. They assume, I guess, that Jesus just didn't know what he was doing because who would have wanted to do that intentionally? That would have been crazy. And like all Jews, I think those men, the disciples, probably had a degree of respect 
for the Pharisees? I mean, we look at it now with you know 2,000 years of hindsight and the Bible to tell us what to really think. And so we just look at these guys as a bunch of buffoons. But that's not the way they were seen in their day. They were the honored religious leaders of the day. These are guys that if you got them in another setting, in a different set of circumstances, you might actually like them. You know, these are wise guys. These were guys who had a lot of experience. They were very learned. I mean, they weren't bad people in every area of life. You know, you can't make these guys into a cartoon villain. They're real people. And to see Jesus dress them down that way publicly was a bit shocking and certainly worrying. And so the logical assumption is, he just must not understand what he's saying. Can you identify a little with that feeling, by the way? I mean, you know, our culture is deteriorating. I think that's clear. But at least for now, most people still expect that there be respect for authority and that in a public setting that you would show civility for one another. That's mostly still true. And so if somebody around you violates that social norm, doesn't it make you feel a little uncomfortable? Somebody just starts acting rude in a public setting against somebody. Like, have you ever been in a somewhere where someone's upset at a clerk? Some poor person behind the counter who has to deal with an upset customer about some matter. And they're just treating the person badly. Don't you feel bad for the clerk? You, you just The whole thing is just awkward, right? Especially if you're closely associated. What if the person doing that is your spouse? Now you're even more upset because you're associated with that person. Well, there are times when that instinct of trying to avoid conflict or to mitigate it and stop it, there's actually times when that plays into the enemy's hands, when it's not necessarily the best response. And Jesus, in this case, yes, of course, he knew these men would be offended by what he said, but he wasn't concerned that they were offended. And he explains his lack of concern when they ask him, using yet another parable. In verse 13, he says, as he speaks about these men, he says, every plant that the Father doesn't plant shall be uprooted. Now, do you know what reference he's making there? Does that ring any bells? Do you remember a parable a couple of chapters back? The wheat and the tares, remember that? He's playing on that. He's pulling us back to that moment, back in chapter 13. Because in that parable, the father, if you remember, sows good seed, and the enemy sows bad seed. Remember that? And how does that parable play out? Well, we know in the parable he says the good seed are believers. And the enemy sows bad seed. The bad seed in the field of the world are the unbelievers. He says that. And then at the end of the age, at the harvest, all the good seed is harvested and put in a barn. All the bad seed is uprooted, we're told, and put in fire. And what that refers to, or what that describes, is the believers being gathered to enter the kingdom, the unbelievers being taken and literally put in hell. So when you hear him say that these men are like those that his father didn't plant and will be uprooted, do you know what he just said about these guys? They're unbelievers. I mean, he just labeled them plainly there. Unbelievers. Look, that shouldn't be terribly surprising to us. I mean, again, with all the hindsight we have and what we know from Scripture, these guys were imposters. So the fact that they're men who have no faith, that's not so striking. But the next thing Jesus says, that's important, certainly. In verse 14, he tells his disciples, let them alone. Or you could translate that, ignore them. Ignore them. Now, this raises a question. If you're thinking about this carefully, it kind of raises a question. It would make you wonder, is Jesus saying that unbelievers are to be ignored? Or uh, are they to be rejected because they're unbelieving? Well, we know that can't be true, right? That's, in fact, not only is that not true, it's the opposite of the kingdom program. So it is not to say that Jesus is speaking of unbelievers generally. What is he speaking of? He's speaking about unbelievers 
who portray themselves as your spiritual teachers. Those who would claim to know something about how to please or reach or know God when they themselves don't even have it themselves. That's the group he's talking about. When an unbeliever portrays themselves as an expert in God or an expert in godliness, Jesus says, ignore those imposters. Unbelievers can never be our spiritual leaders. Unbelievers can never be our spiritual teachers because they are speaking of things that they themselves do not understand. Spiritual truth, the Bible says, is only available to those who possess the Holy Spirit because the Spirit is our teacher. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12. He says, speaking about the church, he says, We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Meaning, so that we can understand what God has done for us, what He has given to us. And then a couple verses later, Paul says, But a unbeliever, or as he calls them, a natural man, the unbeliever does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The word of God, you cannot understand it in your natural state as an unbeliever. It's coming at you in a way that your brain can understand it in simple terms. You can read it, you can know the language, but at spiritual level it makes no impact. You really don't get it. How do you get it? Well, you need the author to explain it to you. The way I try to explain that to somebody sometimes is to say it this way. You need the decoder ring. The Spirit of God, who is the author of Scripture, living inside you, teaches you what He meant. When you don't have both ends, when you don't have the author and when you don't have the interpreter, you can't understand it. That's what Paul's point is. It has to be spiritually appraised, spiritually understood. So you need someone to spiritually explain it. That's what's going on in each of us as you hear and study the Word of God, and it makes sense to you. That may seem very simple in the moment. Oh yeah, I understood it. No big deal. Don't look past that. You just had a little mini miracle there. Spiritually, you learned something that can only come because God made it known to you. And he's doing that to the believer constantly. That's what Jesus meant when he said to the disciples, I will send you the Holy Spirit and he will teach you all things. That's what he's referring to. And every believer has that promise. But the unbeliever ain't got none of that. He doesn't understand, she doesn't understand these things. And therefore, you should pay no attention to them. Because all they can do is confuse you, mislead you. You don't worry what they say, but neither do you worry what they think when you respond to them by ignoring them. You just ignore them and leave it be. And Jesus describes an unbeliever in this little moment as those who try to lead somebody being blind themselves. You know, if you can imagine the folly of that, a blind person just going on a long journey somewhere without any clue how they're going to go or where they're going to be. And eventually, sooner or later, they're going to fall into some bad thing, a pit as he calls it here. And if anyone's following them, also blind themselves, they all fall together. And that is a not-so-subtle reference to the stumbling into hell that happens for that unbeliever and any who follow that unbeliever. Because they all are unbelievers. The Bible has a special term for those unbelievers who try to teach others about God. Especially if they're trying to teach true believers. What do we call those people? False teachers. Now, I've got to be very technical here with you for a moment so that you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. A false teacher is not someone who merely teaches falsely. Because by that standard, I'm a false teacher too. Because I ain't perfect. Nobody's perfect. So at any moment, at some point in someone's life, a teacher makes a mistake. You can't immediately say at that moment, oh, false teacher. No, what you say is, you made a mistake. 
What is a false teacher? According to what Christ is describing here, a false teacher is someone who is false. Big difference between those two. It's not that they taught falsely, it's that they are false. They, in other words, are not a believer. They are not who they portray themselves to be. They do not have the Spirit in them. In 2 Timothy 3.5, Paul describes false teachers as, quote, those who hold to a form of godliness, although they deny its power. They portray themselves as godly and as knowing Christ, but they've actually denied Christ. They are not believing. They are always learning, Paul goes on to say, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. It's an intellectual pursuit. You know, the Pharisees had memorized the Old Testament. Can you imagine how hard that is? It's not any smaller now than it was then. There was a test for a particular level of rabbinical expertise. If you wanted to aspire to the height of the rabbinical ladder, there was a test that they would use where they would take a copy of the Old Testament or the Jewish Bible, they would nail a nail through the cover of it somewhere on the cover. Just pick a spot, put a nail through it. And then the rabbi had to quote every word that the nail penetrated through the Bible without opening it. They had memorized it not just in what it said, but they memorized the location of words on the page such that they could kind of know what word was being pierced as it went through. Can you imagine the time involved in that effort? The devotion that that required... They were always learning and never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Why? Because knowing God, fundamentally, is not an intellectual pursuit. It's based on Him revealing Himself to us by His Spirit. Not us finding Him in our knowledge. You can run into these unbelievers who are false teachers and find them to be very wise and very knowledgeable. But because they don't have the Spirit, it's wasted. It's meaningless. And like the Pharisees, as they do these amazing feats of memorization, Paul says, Jesus says, just ignore it. Just ignore it. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, avoid such men as these, he says. Have nothing to do with them. Don't listen to them. Don't try to correct them. Don't try to fix them. Avoid them, he says. Now, are we saying that they are lost and never to be saved? No, that's a whole different issue. When and if you see something in their heart that suggests repentance and an openness to the gospel, preach the gospel. But which way is the information flowing under those circumstances? Us to them. What they're talking about is, don't let it ever go the other way. Avoid them. Okay? Now here's the fundamental question. How do you know if you're looking at a false teacher? What's the test here? What does scripture say we are to do if we are to find out if someone is truly someone we should listen to or not? Well, when you evaluate your teachers or your leaders... You have to consider more than just what they say. Because you have to consider who they are. Who they are. And in fact, who they are is actually more important than what they say. Because as I said earlier, there's going to be days when what I say is wrong. Does that mean it invalidates whether you should listen to me at all? Well, it kind of depends. It depends on what was the error. How significant was it? Is that a pattern? And most importantly... What is the testimony of that person's life? How do they live day in and day out? You know, you can fake word. I mean, I've heard false teachers on the TV who I know by their own confession not to be believers. And yet, they pronounce the gospel from time to time. And you wonder, how is that possible? Look, friends, it's not hard. It's just mimicking. It's just just words. So words are cheap. But what's really hard to fake is a lifetime of godliness. I mean, that's hard to do if you are a believer. 
It's certainly not possible for someone who doesn't have the Spirit. In fact, it is impossible to live a truly godly life without Christ's sanctifying power inside you making that happen. So you look for the fruit of the Spirit, the Bible says, in the life of that person who might claim to be a spiritual leader or teacher for you. So that is things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, the things that Paul mentions in Galatians or elsewhere. And again, the standard here is not perfection. Please don't get in your minds that as soon as somebody you listen to has a bad moment. I tell people all the time, if you catch me on the wrong moment, I'm going to look pretty terrible because I am not yet free of sin. But that's not the standard. What you expect to see, though, is evidence of godliness and grace and love increasing in that person's life over time. That should be the pattern. If that's true, and assuming their teaching is sound, then you accept them. You accept them as a person of faith. You accept them as a leader. You accept them as a teacher. And, of course, you learn from them and respect their authority over time. And I should add, you should not be quick to step back from that. You shouldn't be quick to say, oh, caught you on the wrong day, Steve, so much for that. Well, now I don't know if you're a good teacher. I mean, you have to have some balance in your perspective to understand that everyone's going to have a bad day. But if that person's life consistently departs from Scripture in major ways, well, then you have plenty there to know this is not someone you should be following. Either they are disqualified as a teacher because they don't meet the character requirements, Or, at worst, they might be an unbeliever who's been playing a game and it's now starting to show. This is what the Bible means when it tells us we are to judge a tree by its fruit. We evaluate teachers by more than what they say. And as you follow this standard, I will tell you, the more surprised you will be in time because there are a lot of guys I have found who, for whatever reason, they can play the game really well for a while, but eventually it starts to come out and you start to wonder, I'm not so sure about that person anymore. Because the enemy, Satan, he is really good at this. And he has two basic tactics that you need to know about in how he puts men like Pharisees into the lives of believers in an attempt to move you off of what is true. The two tactics are really two sides of a coin. He spreads lies and he suppresses truth. He spreads lies and he suppresses truth. If you can get either one of those to work in your life, he's winning. And... He uses both of those tactics in in this example, in the Pharisees. First, the Pharisees were constantly inventing false theology. That's this Mishnah thing again. Rules, traditions that they claim were doctrines, and everyone started following those instead of listening to the Word of God. You get to the point where by the time of Jesus' day, the people of Israel basically didn't know the Bible at all. They basically only knew the Mishnah. That was their Bible. And the enemy used that as a smokescreen. And he still does that today. Do you know the reason why there are so many religions in the world? I mean, I don't even know if you can count them all. There's new ones every week. Why? Because, friends, the enemy, who is the father of lies, has invented all of them except the real one. And from his point of view, he does not care which one of the bad ones you pick. And the more choice he gives you, the more it seems to suggest that they're all equally good. At the very least, he's just muddying the waters so that you can't find the right one. That's his tactic. You want to be a Buddhist? Great. You want to be a Taoist? Great. You want to be a Mormon? Have at it. Whatever you want. Just don't be a Christian. That's the enemy's approach. Remember the old saying, I don't drink, dance, or chew, or date girls that do? 
And that's actually a great example of sneaking false teaching into the church in the hope of tempting self-righteousness. Because that is an example of a meaningless rule that has been offered as if it was from God in the hope that it would trigger self-righteousness in place of actually doing what God wants you to do. What you're saying is that I have my little rules, and because I'm so scrupulously following my little rules, I am more righteous than those who don't follow my rules. And then, as that little thing ends when it says, I don't date girls that do, that little part says, also, I won't accept fellowship with anyone else who will not follow my rules. It's funny the way we say it, but it reflects a very serious problem of legalism. So what the enemy says is this, rather than you think about what the Bible actually says you should be thinking about, let me give you lies in its place that if you think about those instead, it will trigger self-righteousness, it will take you off track from actually doing what, I would, what God really wants you to do, it will divide you and make self-righteous little Pharisees out of everybody. And that's a really effective technique in preventing the unity of the church from becoming a source of grace, love, and power in the world. And meanwhile, we feel really good about the fact that we're following our little rules. Oh, except for that half of the church that doesn't, and we won't have anything to do with them anyway. I mean, that's the attitude that builds out of this. It divides, it confuses, it provokes pride, it provokes self-righteousness. And grace and love just get pushed out the door. But even if you go somewhere where the truth breaks through, the Lord is able to bring something to the foreground where we see the truth despite all of the confusion, all of the, the muddied water. Well, now the enemy just flips his switch to the other tactic and he says, well, let me just suppress that truth. Let me just get it out of the way. You see that happening here. After the Pharisees throw the Mishnah in front of everybody and Jesus says, no Mishnah, guys, we don't need that. What does the enemy do next? Well, through the intimidation of these men, under the threat of persecution, he gets the disciples of Jesus to tell Jesus, cool it. Can you just tone that down? We don't want everyone hearing this. We're going to be in trouble. Do you get that? I mean, the enemy actually was able to succeed, at least in a minimal way, in getting the disciples to do his bidding, in trying to intimidate Jesus or ask Jesus to stop. Look, threats of persecution, threats of public rejection, uh, that is one of the favorite tools the enemy has always had, going back to Jesus himself, for trying to suppress the truth. Today you have governments around the world suppressing the Christian message in various places. And even in religiously tolerant cultures like ours today, here, at least for now, you still find pressure, right? At work, at school, in, in offices, in public forums, wherever, that you don't talk about Jesus. There's only one religion you can't talk about anymore, is Jesus. So if the Christian remains silent, where's the truth going to come from? Jesus said, if we don't speak the truth, the rocks will cry out. But the problem, friends, is though the truth got out, it's to our shame if the rocks have to do it. That's the whole point. So, yeah, we have to be savvy about this. I'm not asking you to just run out into the face of opposition and do something dumb. I mean, you have to be savvy, you know, wise as a serpent, figure out what the right way is to witness, but don't... Don't let the enemy cause you to do his bidding by being intimidated into silence. That is not a healthy attitude. He says, ignore the unbelievers who contend with you over the truth. Do not fear them, in other words. Do not worry about them. Serve him. Let him worry about the outcome. All right, so that's lesson one for today. But there's a second one. After he exposes them as unbelievers, now we get to the point where Peter says, can you explain what you meant about that whole sin in your mouth thing? Verse 15, Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. Jesus said, 
Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile the man, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Earlier I started this by saying there was going to be something tonight that would help somebody, I'm sure, help free somebody. And this is where we get to that point. In Mark's Gospel, we're told that the disciples asked this question. But Matthew says, no, it wasn't the disciples who asked it. Peter actually asked it. I think this is one of those little moments of humor in the Gospel. Because we know that Peter was the source for Mark's Gospel. The one that said the disciples asked. So it seems as though Peter didn't want us to know that he was the one who actually asked the question. And we know that makes some sense because Acts, the book of Acts shows us how much Peter actually struggled with this whole concept that, that what you ate was not a problem anymore. In fact, you notice that even before he explains the parable, Jesus chastises Peter for not understanding. He still had a long way to go. But then he goes into explaining it. And as I said earlier, he explains here that sin is not a physical problem. Sin is not a physical problem. And what I mean by that is it does not result from what you do. This is revolutionary. Sin does not result from what you do. All right? Sin is a spiritual problem. It results from who you are, from your nature. And he explains this concept simply by using this example of food. He says, look, food has no impact on your spirit. Food goes through your body and out the other end. We don't have to go any more in detail than that. And your spirit was not involved in that process. All right? So your spirit is not affected by what you eat. But what comes out of us, which is a way of saying what you think, what you say, what you do, those are the things that come out of us, if you will, those are a reflection of your spirit. Those are the reflection of your inner nature. And those things defile you because they are the markers of sin. But you notice, Jesus says those things come from our heart. You see that? Now, Jesus made you. He constructed your physical body. He knows that the thinking part of your body is not your heart, it's your brain. So why did he say heart? Because in the Bible, heart is the Bible's way of describing your inner nature, your spirit. Heart is a euphemism for spirit in the Bible. That's why we say believe in your heart, not believe in your brain. Because it's a spiritual agreement with God that leads us to salvation, not an intellectual agreement. All right, so it's an in-the-heart attitude. And he says, if you commit a theft, as an example, you sin, yes. But friends, that sinful action of theft did not start at the moment you took the item. Jesus says that actually had an earlier beginning in the heart, that is in your spirit. That is, before you act to steal, you had to think about it. You had to choose to do it. You had to make a decision you would steal. Guess what? That's when you sinned. In fact, that was sin, and all the, the last thing was when you actually took the item, that was just the last link in a chain of sin. That's not when it started, that's when it ended. It started in here. And in that sense, it came out, and then it became manifested by an action, and then everyone else could see it, but friends, even if you had never taken it, you sinned when you thought about doing it. That's what the Bible says. I summed it up last week by saying this, human beings are not sinners because we sin, we sin because we are sinners. Sin is present. Did you know this? Sin is present in you before you take your first breath. 
before the doctor slapped you on the rear end and you started crying, you were already 100% sinful. And that nature that you got from birth is why you then acted sinfully throughout the rest of your life. David says it this way. If you have any doubts, let me tell you what King David says in one of the Psalms, Psalm 51. Speaking of himself, David says this, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now he's referring here, as you might know, to the sin that he engaged in with Bathsheba, killing Bathsheba's husband in battle and taking her as a wife and having an adulterous relationship with her. He was convicted of that, obviously, and he was crying out to God in humility, asking for forgiveness. But notice what he says about his sin. He said, it is ever present before me, which means this, there was never a day in his life when sin was not present in him. He acted sinfully when he slept with Bathsheba, you bet. That was hardly his first sin. David sinned when he lusted for Bathsheba before he took her. I mean, you just keep going back and back and back. And certainly before that whole episode, he says in Psalm 51, I was sinful from birth. I was conceived in sin. And he doesn't mean that the act of conception was sinful. He's saying that as he was formed in his mother's womb, sin passed from his parents to him. That's what original sin means. It means we inherit a nature of sin. We are like our parents. We get it from them. Blame your parents. <laughs> Paul says it this way in Romans seven eighteen. He says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing to do good is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. Then he asks this, he says, Now, if I am doing the very thing I don't want, I am no longer the one doing it. It is sin within me. And he says, I find then this principle, that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Now, Paul's not saying you can't blame yourself for your own sin. Because that sin nature that's in you, causing you to sin, that is part of you. So you still get blamed for it. What he is saying, though, is for the believer, once you've been saved, the Bible says you receive a new spirit. That new spirit now knows what is right and what is wrong, and it wants to do what's right. So when you see yourself doing something you know to be wrong, there's a part of you that's saying, I shouldn't do this. Ask yourself this, as Paul asked himself. He says, why do I do the thing I don't want to do? Why don't I just cut all that out? Because this nature that you have is so powerful, it never stops wanting you to do the wrong thing. That is sin, evil, as Paul says, present within you. It is not you, because when you die, when your body dies, the sin that's in your body goes with it. And what, what's left behind is your spirit. And your spirit is not the part that wants to do the wrong thing. Your spirit is the part that has been made new in Christ and knows what the right thing is. Your spirit goes on without the sin because it's not the part that's sinful. Your spirit knows the right thing. Your flesh, well, it knows the right thing, but it doesn't want to do the right thing. And so the two of them are doing this until you lose that body. Sin is in you. It's not the product of an action. It's the cause of the action. 
And that's why you need Jesus. We not only needed someone who would pay for our sin, we also needed a long-term solution to the source of our sin. You think about that. If Jesus' plan had been nothing more than simply paying the price of your sin, when you die, you're still sinful. Sin can't enter into the presence of God. What Jesus did in in the way that he lived and died is he solves both problems. He paid the penalty for your life of sin, and he removes your condemnation. But then he also said he would give you a resurrection like his own so that your sinful body would be taken away one day and a new sinless body would come in its place and now you're no longer in the position to sin because you no longer have that force inside you. So that's why we talk so much about being resurrected. Your resurrection is the moment you're finally done with sin. That's why our Savior, by the way, had to be born of a virgin. Did you know that? The reason a virgin birth had to happen is not just some parlor trick so that he could get attention or so that we knew he would be the Messiah. No, there's a real theological reason why it had to be that way. He could not inherit Adam's sinful nature. Adam was not Jesus' father, right? The Holy Spirit conceived Jesus. So by not having an earthly father, Jesus wasn't conceived in sin the way David said that he was. And that allows God to break the chain of original sin. So the Bible calls Jesus our second Adam. Because he essentially restarted the human race, spiritually speaking. Just as you were all born the first time in the sinful nature of Adam, so by faith in Jesus Christ you may be born again, now in the perfect sinless nature of Christ. And since his own birth did not start with a sinful conception, we now trace our ancestry to him in a sinless spirit, substituting that for the sinful one we got in our first birth. Jesus said, righteousness is not found in what you do. It is not found in what you eat. It is not found in what you think or say. For that matter, it is not anything that you can do or refrain from doing. Why? Because there is no set of rules powerful enough to create righteousness in us when our body is infected already with sin. The rules don't make that go away. Look, if you could live one full day of your life, 24 hours, never committing a single sinful thought, deed, or word. First of all, give it a try, see how that goes. But if you could do that for one 24-hour period, do you realize at the end of that 24-hour period, you are just as sinful as you were at the beginning? Because the sin is in you. It's not what you did, it's in you. You didn't solve anything. Now, I'm not saying it's not a good goal. I'm just saying it's not how you get to righteousness. Trying to cure sin by following rules is like trying to get dry by moving to a different part of the swimming pool. No matter where you go in the pool, you're equally wet. And no matter how many rules you adopt for yourself, you're equally sinful. That's why Paul says righteousness is found apart from the law, because a law, any law, is really just a set of rules. And the law that God gave Israel is good and holy and perfect, but it is also powerless to solve your sin problem. The only thing it did was expose how sinful you were. So it's not what you put in your bodies that determines if you're sinful or not, it's what comes out. And that's why the solution to sin can't be found in something outside us. It can only be found in what change our nature. Something has to change who we are spiritually. And that's where the idea of Christian liberty comes in. Here's your freedom moment. You and I, the Bible says, Christians I'm saying, we have freedom 
from keeping the law as given to Moses or any law that comes upon us from the outside, we have a freedom from having to keep that for the sake of righteousness because it's useless and because we already have righteousness by faith in Christ. Paul says it this way in Colossians 2.16. He says, Let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Those things, he says, are mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Here's what he just said. I love the analogy. A shadow. I want you to imagine this scene for me with me for a moment. You're standing waiting for a friend because you're going to meet him for some reason, and they're coming from the parking lot around the corner of the building. You know they're over there. They're coming sooner or later. You're not sure exactly when. You're waiting. And before they come around that corner, you happen to notice their shadow cast in front of them from the sun that's behind them. And you see the shadow, you go, yeah, that looks like my friend. And as they call to you from around the building, they say, hey, Steve, I'll be there in just a second. I'm almost there. And you might say, oh, yeah, I see you. I'll see you in a second. Who are you talking to when you shout back at that person? What are you looking at when you shout? All you can see is a shadow, so you're probably looking at the shadow. But as soon as they turn the corner, what do you do? They're standing right here. Their shadow's over there. What do you do? Do you go, hey, nice to see you? They'd be like, hey, over here. Oh, sorry, I was still busy with your shadow. That is literally what Paul is talking about. The Sabbath day, the dietary restrictions, the other rules of the law. Before the appearing of Christ, they were the focus for religious life among God's people because they were the forerunners to the substance. They pictured what Jesus would be. Before he comes, all I have is the shadow. I obey the shadow. When the substance comes... To obey the shadow is to ignore the substance. That's why there is no Sabbath day for the Christian. Every day is a Sabbath. You rest in Christ. That's why we don't have dietary restrictions. That's why we don't do any of the law. And neither should I do your laws. And neither should you do mine. Because we already have 100% righteousness in Christ. And because in the observing of those things, we are becoming self-righteous. If you're righteous by faith alone, you don't need other people's rules to tell you how to be righteous. Now, at this point, somebody will tell me, You mean I can just do anything? You mean I have no rules at all? I can murder? That's the classic one, by the way. I can murder? <laughs> Why don't you go to see how that works out? Go ahead. You have a law. Do you know where that law is right now? You have a law written on your heart, the Bible says. I don't need to keep the law of Moses to know that I can't lie or steal. Because Christ's Spirit inside me has already told me that. But even more than that, the law of Christ on my heart also tells me things that the law of Moses never addressed. Because the true law of God is so big, expansive, and infinite, there's not enough stone in the world to write it down. You know, what he gave Israel, 613-odd rules, he gave Israel a sample of the law of God. He said, tell you what, Israel, try this. When the real law of God is infinite, how do I know that? For example, the Mosaic Law never says anything about lusting. Did you know that? You won't find it written anywhere in the Law of Moses. You know what else you don't find in the Law of Moses? Cutting off people in traffic. Not in the Law of Moses. Hallelujah, somebody said. How about being rude on the phone? Not in the Law of Moses. There are a million things that are not in the Law of Moses. But the Law of Christ convicts me about every single one of those things when I do it. 
So my faith in Christ has made me 100% righteous by faith alone. And now with the Spirit of God living in me, I've got this engine of change in me that says all the time, don't do this, don't do that. And I've got the law of God working in me. What foolishness would it be if I ignore the law of God written on my heart in all its infinite wisdom so that I could go back to a 3,000-year-old law written on stone that only has 613 commandments in it? Do you know what we call that? Self-righteousness. Trying to do on your own what God is prepared to do in your heart if you would just listen to Him. Legalism and hypocrisy produces a deadly church culture, especially in a church that's new and forming. I haven't detected it here. I don't want you to worry that I'm on some rampage here because it's something of concern in me. I know. I mean, it's just on the page today. But what I'm saying is you can't even let it get started. It stunts spiritual growth. It confuses new believers. It discourages experienced Christians. And the Jews of Jesus' day couldn't even recognize them as their Messiah because they were so entrenched in all this legalism, they didn't know what to look for. When someone refuses to adopt another person's rule for righteousness, you know what happens? They're labeled apostate. They're labeled a pariah. That was going on in Jesus' day. When Jesus failed to keep the Pharisees' rules, it gave cause for them to turn to the crowd and say, ignore this man, he's an apostate. He's a heretic. Why? Because he won't wash his hands the way we told him to. And many other little things. We are a church friends of the Bible, yes. But we are not a church of rules for the sake of righteousness. We are a church of grace. That is, we receive the grace of Christ by faith. We study about the grace of God in His Word. And I'd like us to live by the light of that grace as well, not seeking our own righteousness by some set of rules or judging others for their rules. Just forgive one another when we fail. Just recognize we all have sin living inside us, at least till we get rid of this body. And in the meantime, let's grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. How's that for a mission? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to grow, Father. Help us to grow in grace. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for doing all the hard work of our salvation and leaving us with nothing to do except to receive it. And thank you, Father, for the wisdom of your word so that we would never be entrenched again in the rules that others create, abandoning the prize of our liberty simply to feel self-righteous by our efforts. I praise you, Father, for not putting us under that burden, for freeing us from it and helping us to free others. And then finally, Father, I pray the enemy wouldn't turn our freedom into licentiousness either. Give us no room to think that we may sin as we care to simply because we are not under law. For we are under your law in our hearts, and we know, Father, that it calls us to even greater acts of love and mercy and godliness. Empower us for that mission, Father, as we... Go out today to represent you in the world that we live in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.